Okay, here we go. Uh, believe it, big truths about uh, God. Uh, I'm really excited about this particular series because the more I think about the things that are true about God, the more convinced and convicted I become of them. And the more convinced and convicted I become of the things about God that are true, then the more conformed, at least in theory, my behavior comes in line with that belief. In theory, uh, my life ever more gets conformed around these truths, these values that get stronger and stronger. And as I said last Sunday, it's my prayer for all of us that we might be strengthened in the faith as you were taught. I want to be a strong, robust Christian. I want to be part of a strong, robust church where we stand solid, firm, unshakable, unmoved by this or that because we know who we are, we know what we believe and we know above all else in whom we have believed. So as Paul would say, we're not those people that are kind of just tossed around all over the place, blowing left and right, going with this and going after that and not really sure what we're going after in the end. No longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the ways and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. We don't want to be like that, do we? Instead, we want to be those who build our lives on something that's solid and true, a firm foundation that we can build lives that are strong and unshakable. And so my job, as Paul said to Titus, is uh, uh, relatively simple in one sense, is to uh, teach in accordance with sound doctrine. That's what I'm going to have a go at, okay, for the next, uh, I don't know, 13 weeks or however many it is. And there's something that you have to do as well, because Paul, when writing to Titus, says those that want to be leaders in God's church, those who want to be spiritually mature, well, they've got to make sure that they listen to the sound teaching, when sound doctrine when it is taught, and not only listen listen to it, but build their lives upon it, and then encourage others with it. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So my job, your job, uh, we're in it together. The word doctrine simply means a kind of set or or an affirmation of belief. So Christian doctrine, affirmation of belief about Christ or all things Christian, belief uh, about God. And we'll cover the main Christian doctrines over these weeks up to Christmas. Uh, Theology is the study of God. uh, And when you have a study of God that looks at all the doctrines, all the main doctrines, and sees how they all fit together, creates a system out of that. People talk about systematic theology. So when you're chatting to your neighbour and your neighbour says, I'm washing the car this morning, what are you doing? You can say, I'm doing systematic theology. Thank you. And, uh, and um, see where it takes you in uh, the conversation. So that's the goal. Uh, that we might uh, grab hold of these truths and grapple with them. Uh, if, uh, if your uh, hope through this series is to get out of church as quickly as possible, it's not the series for you. Uh, we're going to have to work really hard together. Uh, we're going to have to engage our minds. You need to go to bed early on a Saturday night so your mind's wide awake on a Sunday morning. We're going to engage our minds and our hearts. We're going to have to work hard together. And uh, uh, I believe that if we commit ourselves to that, God will reward those who seek him with all of their heart. Is that not the truth? And uh, if we engage our hearts and our minds with these things, then uh, we'll be the ones that benefit uh, in the end. You ready? 
Let's pray together, shall we? And then get uh, going. Lord, help us. We need your help. We need your help. These are spiritual things. And we, by nature, are people that have lost our spiritual way. So we need your help. Engage us. Illuminate our minds. Stimulate our hearts. Draw us to the truth. Help us to conform our lives around the truth. We're asking that we wouldn't just get to the end of the series, but that we would grow strong and robust in our faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First one. Here we go. Doctrine of uh, Revelation. God speaks. At the heart of this doctrine, it's where it all begins, is the fact that God has made himself known. He has not hidden away so that we would know nothing about him, disappeared into some far corner so that we couldn't even begin to grasp that he might be there, but he has made himself known. Theologians talk about two different types of revelation, two different types of ways in which God has made himself known. The first is general revelation, which as it you might suggest is general, it's to everybody, and it says general things uh, about God, and God speaks through his world, these general truths about who he is. And then theologians talk about special revelation. If general revelation is like the outline in a colouring book, the special revelation fills in all the colours and all the detail. God speaks through His Word. And ultimately, God speaks through His living Word, Jesus Christ, of which all the Bible points towards. So, first, general revelation. God speaks through His world. And as the name suggests, it is a general revelation. It is something general about God. And essentially, through his world, God speaks of his existence and gives us clues as to his nature. So as we said right at the beginning, for example, God speaks through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. And there are other places too. So when Luke writes in Acts, uh, uh, he records these words, yet he has not left us, that's God, without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So as summer moves to autumn, it's a testimony about God. As autumn moves to winter, it's a testimony about God. As winter, above all, breaks into spring... It's a testimony about God. A reminder of his existence and of his kindness towards us. And Paul puts it like this. This is a really important verse for us to hold on to uh, this morning. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, and then explains what they are, some of these general things about God, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, being understood from creation itself, so that men, mankind, men and women, are without excuse. So over the years, 
theologians and philosophers have talked in different ways about how creation speaks and reveals the existence, the presence of uh, God. And if you've done a bit of theology or a bit of philosophy and so on, you would have come across uh, several, probably all of these. So back in the 13th century, a man called Thomas Aquinas began to talk about it like this. It's been called the cosmological argument. And he says, the way that God reveals himself through this world is obvious, really, because everything that happens has a cause. And that's true, isn't it? We live in a world where things don't just happen. Everything is caused to happen. So, for example, when the church centre was built and people came back perhaps to see me and they hadn't been here for a while and they see the church centre, they immediately understand that someone or some group of people or somehow that has been caused to come into existence. So they asked me, who was the builder? Who was the architect? How long did it take to build? How much did it cost? And so on. No one turned up and saw the building and said, golly, that must have been a shock when you turned up on Sunday and saw it there. Because everyone understands things just don't happen. We live in a world where everything has a cause. How strange then to think that in a world where everything has a cause, the world itself was not caused. It makes no sense. And so this holds true however you believe the world was made. If you uh, believe uh, an evolutionary process, and perhaps we'll talk about this on another Sunday, that the world was created through a, a process, somehow that process was started. If you believe it was all about a Big Bang, well, who started the Big Bang, or where did the chemicals come from, or who put them there in that way? It's a nonsense to say it just happened. It makes no sense of the world that we've received. Others talk about it in a different way. The teleological argument, this was first uh, uh, talked about in the West, at least by Plato, and then in the 18th century, most famously by a guy called uh, William Paley. And he said, it's simple. This world exhibits a highly complex design. Therefore, there must be a designer. And in a sense, you begin to add clarity to the picture. It couldn't just be some thing that caused the world to exist because an inanimate object could not create intelligence. That makes no sense. Only an intelligent being would be able to create something else that reflected a certain amount of intelligence. And we all reflect a certain amount of intelligence in varying degrees. No sense that it just happened and no sense that it just happened by a collection of things. Because what's produced is intelligence. So Paley famously in his natural theology talked about this. He says, imagine you're walking up a mountain and you come across a watch. You just find it there lying on the ground. You go, whoa, that's a watch. That's, a, that's wow. And you pick it up and you look at this watch and you go, well, how was that made? He says, you could conclude that the existence of a watch was by a fortuitous conversion of natural forces, wind, rain, heat, and volcanic action. But this is plainly much less credible than to postulate an intelligent watchmaker who put it all together. By token, we have a complex, intelligent universe, which implies an intelligent designer. Popularly, you hear people say the likelihood of the universe happening by chance is like an explosion in the printers producing a library. It's that Right. It, it makes no sense. Yes. 
Who may, well, exactly, you tell me. That's exactly the point. And, and the, the thing is, and I've got quite irritated about this during this week. You know, if, if you're sort of out and about outside and, and, and you kind of have to confess to someone that you believe in God, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, you're the weird one, isn't it? You know, you believe in God, you believe God created the world, so you're weird, whereas they think it all just somehow happened, and that's okay. Can you see what Paul was saying about the craftiness and the cunningness of men? Now, this is really serious. So we live in a world where we are made to feel like the burden of proof is with us. It is not with us. The burden of proof is not with us to prove that God created the world. That's obvious. The burden of proof is with those that go, oh, bit of luck, chance, random happening, somehow, somewhere, out of nothing, here it is. Bob's your uncle. I cannot believe that if you've ever held a brand new baby, I've got four children, such a privilege. You hold a brand new baby, eyes, hearing, reflexes, motor mechanism that grips on an offered finger, pre-programmed understanding of food and where to find it, tiny heart pattering away, lungs capable of breath, of breathing air, then hurling it past their vocal cords at such a voluminous rate. Stroke of luck. Newborn baby has 60 trillion cells, with each cell carrying more information than the shelves of a university library. Each cell. Stunningly unique, with a never-to-be-repeated blend of 6,000 million distinct, separate, and precise instructions, making up its genetic code. Yet the wonder of a newborn baby is but a speck to the wonder of the universe. I'm about to show you a fantastic picture. You may have seen it. The picture of is a 21-week-old baby in the womb. So not 21 week of birth. You get what I'm saying? 21 weeks from conception. Baby's name is Samuel Alexander Armus, who's being operated on by a surgeon by the name of Joseph Brunner. Uh, And Dr. Brunner has specialised in operating on babies within the womb that have a condition that if they were to be born, they would simply die and not be able to be saved. But if he operates on them while they remain in the womb, then he can save them. This particular baby was born, uh, or not born, was uh, was conceived, and they recognised that there uh, was spina bifida, and so he operated on young Samuel 21 weeks after conception. And, and he operated, uh, sorry for a bit squeamish, uh, uh, exposed the uterus, cut into the uterus, uh, and this 21-week-old baby from conception reached through the incision and gripped the surgeon's hand. If you are squeamish, don't look, okay? Look away now. If you don't like blood or operations, look away. But this is remarkable. So there it is. Little, 21 weeks from conception. The operation was success, back in the womb, carried on growing, perfectly healthy baby. Praise God. Is that chance? You people out there go, oh, it's just some random stuff going on. And they make us feel like we need to prove. Hey, we're, the balance of proof is not with us. It's not with us. Chance, fluke, all this intelligence. I mean, even the intelligence of the surgeons and the medical team. If this planet was a bit bigger or a bit smaller, a bit further away, or a bit nearer, spinning a little quicker or a little slower, we never would be here. And so you could go on. I've got loads of stuff about that. I mean, you know, it's, the point's made, isn't it? And then another guy came along, 
And he wanted a philosophical argument. This is Anselm in the 11th century. And if, if you don't get this one, this is fine because it's hard to get. And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. And if you don't get it, don't worry. Some anorak somewhere in the room will get it and just leave it to them. Uh, 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 you know, we've heard enough, haven't we? It's obvious. God made the will. Okay, so this is for the anoraks. And uh, it goes like this. God is a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. That's obvious, isn't it? So the first bit's easy. God is a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Something which exists only in the mind is obviously not as great as something that exists in the mind and in reality. So far, so good. If God does not exist, but we think he does, i.e., he exists in our mind, but not in reality, then we are the greatest things. But since the greatest thing cannot simply be thought but needs to exist, then God must exist. Otherwise, it's a totally incompatible philosophical conclusion. Because we would be going around thinking, well, there is a God, and if we can think there is one, then it's impossible to think that something greater, because that's the original presupposition. You get where I'm going. Anyway, the anoraks, leave it to them. They'll think about that all afternoon. You don't need to worry. God speaks through his world. God speaks through creation. God speaks, secondly, through conscience. Every time anyone says that's not fair, you can't lie to me, you can't behave like that, you ought to do this. Every time someone does that, they are appealing to the fact that there is a higher authority under which all of us somehow are subjected. They're appealing to the fact that there are some kinds of rules or some kinds of codes by which we all should abide. So we live with this ridiculous contradiction in life that there are agnostics, those who aren't sure what they believe, and atheists, although there aren't many pure atheists, those who say they'll certainly not believe in God or anything, who live lives of utter contradiction because they will say there are certain rules that govern all humanity. How can there be rules that govern all humanity if there was never a rule giver? And they act like the balance of proof is with us. And we could say so much more. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Everywhere you look, you see the works of his hands. I love this verse from Job. Job says, if you're feeling pretty dull and pretty stupid and aren't sure about these things, ask the animals. Ask the animals and they'll teach you. Or the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Now, he's not saying that literally. Don't go up to a penguin in Colchester Zoo. What can you tell me about the uh, creation of the world? But the very fact that the penguin is there says something about a God who made it. They'll tell you. Speak to the earth. Not literally, metaphorically. Look around. It'll teach you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that, dot, 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 the hand of the Lord has done all this? Everywhere you look, every single day, every sight, every sound, every smell, every touch, every taste, speaks of a God who brought this whole thing into being. The burden of proof is not with us. Paul said, mankind is without excuse. It's blatantly obvious to those who choose to see. Why do so few people choose to see? I think the big answer to that question is this. 
if I choose to see that there is a God who made me and who gave me this life, then I will have a responsibility towards him about how I live that life. I'd rather not. I'd rather not. I'd rather do my own thing, go my own way, make my own choices. I'd rather not. And so we live in this corrupt world where the cunningness and deceitfulness of men has created such a malaise, such a confusion, that people would say to us, you believe that God created... That's weird. Hey, it's not weird. What's weird is that you can believe that all this just somehow happened and amounts to nothing, has no purpose, no meaning. It's just spinning almost out of control and one day will crash and it'll all be over. That's weird. Hello? Anyone on my side? That's weird. But we're left going, oh, we've got to say this, we've got to say this. No. Let's pray that God will open people's eyes to see what his word says is blatantly obvious. People who go through their lives never thinking about God, never seeking him, discovering him, finding out about him or acknowledging him, cannot say at the end of the day, well, I'm sorry, God, I had no idea. God will say, you what? Everywhere you look, you can see my fingers, the works of my hands. You had no idea. We are without excuse. And so this general revelation tells us that God exists and gives us clues, does it not, about what he's like. For example, he must be bigger than space. If he created the universe, he must somehow be beyond it in order to uh, create it. He must be greater than time. There was a time, although... The language fails us because there wasn't time, so there was a time when no time existed. And there will be a time when time comes to an end. The language doesn't make sense because we have no way of talking about it, of conceptualizing it. Sometimes we think about eternity as being never-ending time, but it's not. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise. than It's a great hymn, and it's kind of true, but it isn't, because there won't be any time. I won't be looking at the watch in heaven. Boop. Three hours. Boop. It'll be different to that. Explain that. I can't explain that. No idea. He's outside of time. He's greater than time, which is fantastic news because God can fix things in my past and fix things in the future all at once. Great place to be, trusting in him because he sees it all outside of time. Eternity has no beginning and no end. We we might say by looking at nature that he's interested in detail. This world has fantastic detail, doesn't it? Now, you might know some detail persons. God might have blessed you with detail people in your life. And you might sometimes be incredibly irritated by a detail person. If you are that detailed person that's happily irritating the rest of the planet, then know that you're like God. (laughs) Who said that? You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Come again. A detailed person. That's what God's like. Hey, he's into the big picture as well, everybody. But the detail. Look at at the detail of the flowers. Look at the person next to you. Look at the detail on their face. No, don't. No, 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 don't. Keep looking this way. Keep looking this way. Detail everywhere. 
So God's interested in detail, all these clues to his nature. We might say, well, a clue is that, the, the, that there's this such a strong sense of what's right and wrong. We, we knock it, we abuse it, sure, but we know instinctively it's there. A great sense of justice within us all. So maybe God's into things that are good and he's into things that are just and, and so on. But God said, hey, all those clues, you know, all that general revelation, it's good, but it's not enough. Because it leaves so many unanswered questions. And God wasn't content to leave so many questions unanswered. Like, what kind of God is he really? And can I know him? Is he loving and kind? And if he is loving and kind, what does he think of me? What about my mistakes and my failings and shortcomings? Does he have a plan for me? Is he nearby? Can I know him? Does he want to know me? All those questions are left unanswered by general revelation. We get hints, clues... But then the detail isn't filled in. The colouring of your colouring book hasn't uh, sufficiently begun. We can only know if God chooses to tell us. I have a 100% failure rate with goldfish. When our goldfish died some years ago now, our then three-year-old had a crisis of faith as she grappled with her own mortality. We don't give up that easily, so we prepared to buy another fish. I, the father of the house, took the lead and cleaned out the fish tank with a scourer. That was a mistake. When we finally got the second fish, you could barely see it through the scratches around the side of the tank. But it was in there all the same. And it wasn't long before it went the same way. And then again, and then again. Those fish were loved, not by me, but by others in our household. Did they ever understand that someone loved and delighted over them? Did they ever appreciate where their food came from? Did they have any understanding of the lengths I went to to keep them alive? Did they have any understanding of our world, all that was beyond their fish tank? No, how how could they? How could they possibly know and understand? And how could we tell them? If I sat every night by the bowl and preached all my best sermons, would it help? No. If every night we blew them a kiss and said that we loved them, would it have helped? No. If we read the great works of history, and no, nothing. They were utterly incapable of understanding. Unless one of us could actually become like them. Unless somehow we could get down to their level and speak their language in their way, on their terms. And that's exactly what God has done. God has come to us on our terms, in our language, become like us that we might understand. Through the pages of the Old Testament, we read the story of God calling people to himself and slowly revealing to him, himself to them, all working towards the day God in person would come down to our level to make himself no. So God speaks through his world, but he also speaks through his word. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his, uh, by his son. The Bible, it's a play on words if you like, God speaks through his word. The Bible, the word of God, points on every page to the literal physical word of God, Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came from heaven to earth to show the way, as we sang earlier 
on. Every page points to Jesus. And so we find God's special revelation, God's colouring in, if you like, of the detail in God's Word, the Bible. And you might say, well, well, how do we know that the Bible is God's special revelation? Well, firstly, we know because it's what we might have expected to find. Let me explain. General revelation suggests that there is a God who made the world and created us as the pinnacle of creation. Relationships are so important to us. So there might be, even in that, a clue that this God may be a relational being who may want to know us, who may want us to know him. But we, but we don't know. So we're, we're looking for more. Is this God going to tell us more, to reveal more about who he is? And when you discover the Bible for the first time, you realize that you found something in which God begins to make himself known. The Bible is that something more. And as you begin to read it, you begin to see God filling in the detail that you could only see in outline from general revelation. So firstly, we can be confident that the Bible is God's special revelation because we are looking for something to fill in the detail. And there it is in its pages. Every page building a picture, helping us to understand those questions that are left unanswered. But secondly, we can be confident that the Bible is God's special revelation because it's utterly unique. If God was going to speak to us in a special way, you would expect it to be different from everything else, wouldn't you? It just stands to reason. You would expect it to stand out from the crowd. And the Bible, in an incredible way, stands out from the crowd. It's not a book so much as a library of 66 books that tell a story from beginning to end. There is nothing like that on the whole of the planet. This Bible is totally unique in its continuity. It was written over 1,500 years, uh, written over 40 generations by more than 40 different authors. The authors had all kinds of different backgrounds. So Moses was a political leader. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah, we heard about earlier, a cupbearer. Daniel, a prime minister. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Uh, Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. Written by all these different people. Written in all kinds of different places. Sometimes out in a wilderness. Sometimes in a dungeon. Sometimes in a prison. Sometimes on a hillside. Sometimes in a study. Sometimes whilst travelling. Sometimes whilst at war. Written at different times. Uh, sometimes there was war and sometimes there was peace. Written in different moods. Some of the writers were in the pit of despair. Other writers were on cloud nine because of what had happened. Written in three different continents, Asia, Africa and Europe. Something the USA can't boast about. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, just thought I'd slip that in. Written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek and so on. Despite all of that, you have this one story from beginning to end. There is nothing like the Bible on the whole of the planet. Nothing gets remotely close in terms of a book that is utterly, utterly unique in its continuity. Unique in its circulation. Bible Society figures uh, show that the Bible has been read more, purchased more, uh, 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 trillions of times. I haven't picked up the figures for this morning, but way more. Uh, 30 years ago, so uh, quite a while ago now, 
Uh, the British and Foreign Bible Society, to meet its demands, had to publish one copy every three seconds, day and night. 22 copies every minute, day and night. 1,369 copies every hour, day and night. 32,876 copies every day in the year to keep up with demand for the Bible. Unique in its translation, the Bible has been translated into more books, into more uh, languages, rather. Uh, 1,280 languages plus unique in its survival. Uh, the, the Bible has, has, has faced such intense opposition, unlike any other book. You know, most books you kind of go, well, oh, I didn't like that, or I do like that, I did like that, I didn't like that. But people go, the Bible, Arr! the Bible's made people really angry. Voltaire talked about, you know, the, uh, a Christ, uh, God being dead and, and really angry at the, the Bible and, uh, and so on and, and so forth. But it survived through all of that. It survived through criticism, survived through persecution and its uh, influence on surrounding literature is without parallel. For example, if every single Bible was destroyed, you could rewrite the Bible in its entirety by looking at major works in libraries. Such is the influence the Bible has had the world over. And so if you're looking for something, you're going, hey, well, this, this this world didn't just be. There's some... Thing, there's someone behind it. Is he making himself known? Say, so where do I go to find that out? Start reading the Bible. There's nothing like it. Nothing even close on the whole of the planet. Thirdly, we can be confident that the Bible is God's special revelation because Jesus confirmed it and we're coming to a close very soon. You say, well, I, I don't care whether Jesus confirmed it or not. Well, uh, look at the life of Jesus. Understand something about who he was. Go back to those early sermons that we did in the Just Jesus series last year and think about the way Jesus' life was totally different to anybody and everyone else's. He died and he rose again and so on. He himself affirmed the Bible to be God's special revelation. He confirms the Old Testament uh, in numerous ways. He, he would quote the Old Testament as if it had divine authority. He would refer to the Old Testament as the Word of God. He declared the Old Testament to be inspired. He treated the Old Testament, which is a library of different books, as a whole entity, a complete canon. He accepted that Old Testament history was true. He accepted Old Testament prophecy. He rebuked those who didn't teach the Old Testament as the Word of God. He himself, even though he was the Son of God, lived under its authority, its teachings for his own actions and uh, ministry. Jesus came along and said, this is it. This is the revelation that we all need. And in doing that, Jesus anticipated the New Testament. Because all through the Old Testament, there is an assumption that something else is coming. Every chapter of the Old Testament almost points us forward to something that's coming. If there's an Old Testament, then there's likely to be a new, you're sharp. And and so Jesus says, look, that's the Old Testament. And by implication, look out for the one that's coming. Look out for a set of writings that will tell an ongoing story that will carry the same inspired inspiration that you've discovered in the Old Testament. And that began to happen pretty soon. His letters, says Peter, one of the apostles, talking about Paul. So Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. So very early on, 20, 30 years after Jesus uh, uh, died and rose again, very early on, 
out of all the New Testament writings, out of all the scribblings and letters of the apostles and their, their writers and so on, some of those writings were beginning to be understood to be Scripture. Part of God's ongoing special revelation. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, for the Scriptures say, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And the Scripture says, the worker deserves his wages. What's interesting about this? The first one is a quote from the Old Testament, which is Deuteronomy. The second quote is from Jesus, Luke's Gospel. So you see what's happening early on? There are some writings out of all the writings of Dr. Luke, some of the stories about Jesus, they are beginning to recognize as being different from the others. Part of what they were looking out for, this special ongoing revelation inspired by God. We haven't got time to go into all the whys and wherefores, but eventually uh, there was a group of documents. They were all uh, had this, the apostolic stamp on it. In a sense, Jesus, by sending out 12 apostles, made further provision for the security of what the New Testament would end up being like. Jesus affirms the Bible. And finally, we can be confident that it's God's word because we hear him speak. We hear him speak. It's in the Bible that God addresses us. And many of us here will know what I mean. There are times when we've opened God's word and it has spoken to us like no other book speaks. Why? Because the word of God is living and active. And God addresses us in it. For many Christians, said Bruce Milne, the supreme reason for according the Bible, the status of God's word written is simply the fact that God himself addresses us in it. God speaks in the words of the Bible in such a manner as to remove all doubt as to its divine origin, character, and authority. In the final analysis, only God can be an adequate witness to himself. All other testimonies such as historical evidence or philosophical deduction can be, can be best possessed only as secondary, sorry, can be best be regarded as only secondary value. Multitudes of Christians, down through the ages, have referred to what John Calvin spoke of as the inward witness of God's Holy Spirit, stronger than all proof. God speaks. God speaks. So, so what? Who cares? Who cares that God speaks through his world and God speaks through his word? Well, I think we should. I think we should care. And what are we going to do about it? If you're not a Christian, then I invite you to look at the world that God has made and make up your mind. And I invite you as you look at the world that God has made and you see behind it the work of a, of a loving, gracious God and you think, well, if there is a loving, gracious God behind the work of his hands that I can see everywhere I look, then I need to pursue him, to seek him. Uh, then I invite you to start looking at his special revelation. I invite you to start looking where God has begun to fill in the colour for us. I invite you to open the Bible and to read it for yourself. The reading plan that we've got for this term starts us off in Genesis. Just open it and read it with an open heart. Ask God if he's real to speak to you, to make himself known. Hey, and he will, because he does. And if you've been a Christian for however long you've been a Christian, and you know that God has spoken through his word, then don't live a day without opening its pages.
You go, that same Bible reading plan. Open it every day and say, God, I need you to speak. I need you to speak. Man cannot live, Jesus said. On what? Cannot live on bread alone. Or lasagna or curry or whatever. But by every word from the mouth of God. Let's prove it. Let's prove that this doctrine of revelation works by reading a chapter every day and saying, God, would you speak to me? I want to see you and I want to know you. Let's pray.